Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth, for the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. The only announcement I have tonight is that we're having our family night this Saturday from 5 to about 7.30 or 8. We're going to be showing the film Prince Caspian. And we'll have barbecue and fixings, and people need to sign up. And do you have a sign-up sheet? It's the board in the kitchen above the stove. Okay. And you all heard that, so you can sign up for bringing desserts. Anything else I need to bring? Just desserts. That's fine. Okay. <laughs> I'm sure there's other things. Okay. All right. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of uh, silent prayer. While we are having silent prayer, the stragglers can get in and sit down, and and we can. Uh, then I will open in prayer. Okay, let's pray. Father, we're thankful that you are our rock and our fortress, and that you give stability to our lives in an ever-changing, ever-shifting world. And as we look at the trends around us, the threats to national security, the uh, health threats in terms of uh, panic that seems to be fostered related to um, pandemic of the swine flu and all of these other things, we know that you're in control and that we as believers can relax. We're in your plan. You have a perfect plan, and you have a mission for each of us to represent uh, the Word of God represent you, represent the truth, and represent the fact that the truth is what gives our lives meaning and value and stability, and that as we study, we are transformed by uh, the renewing of our mind through God the Holy Spirit and your Word, and we pray that we might just be encouraged and strengthened that no matter what happens in our lives, no matter what winds of adversity blow, that we stand firm because we are anchored by you. And now, Father, as we study your word and continue in Hebrews, we pray that we might understand these doctrines and that they might encourage us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we've seen that in Hebrews 9 and also in Hebrews 10 that this is one of the finest and most in-depth chapters in the Scriptures to define the work of Christ on the cross, taking those Old Testament types, those divinely designated symbols in the Day of Atonement, the feast day, in the sacrifices, in the Ark of the Covenant, in the various uh, offerings, the guilt offering, the uh, Thanksgiving offerings, the meal offerings, the burnt offerings, all those different offerings, this all comes together uh, in the person and the work of Christ. And so that ties it all together. Now we've come to uh, the end of chapter 9. We looked at that last time, and so I just want to start there to pick up the thread and go over some things in the first couple of verses 
that I hit on last time, and then we'll proceed on down through the chapter. Hebrews 9.28 says that so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, and that refers to the first advent and to his work uh, on the cross the first uh, during the first advent, and goes on to say will, he will appear a second time. He will appear a second time for salvation. So you have this contrast between the once in the first phrase and the second time in that, in that second clause, rather. The first clause contrasts to the second clause. First advent versus a second advent. And that has to do with his future second return, which is related to glorification. And even though the church will have already been raptured, and have their resurrected and rewarded bodies by that time. Um, if this applies to the church, it could just be a general statement referring to the second coming. That, uh, But it, it, it incorporates all of that together in one summary statement, that he will appear again and we will be glorified. And that second coming is not with reference to sin, but it is for those who eagerly await him. And I pointed out last time that is the expected response of all believers. Whether they have it or not is another story, but that is the expected response. Now, the key word that we see in 928 is that word once, and that is the Greek word uh, hapax, and it is related to a word that it, that we will see again when we get down to verse So just look down the page to verse 10, and we read, By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And that is a form of the word hapax. It's f-hapax, and it emphasizes the sufficiency of that one-time sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And, And we saw last time that this begins with an introductory uh, preposition here, hutos indicating, or adverb rather, indicating in this manner Christ also, having been offered once uh, to bear the sins of many. And that word offering is one of two words that's used in this section at the beginning that are built off of the same Greek uh, root word. You have prospero, and then you have the word anapharo. And the root word there, pharaoh, that verb means to carry something from one place to another. And the prepositional prefix there indicates uh, with ana, pharaoh, it indicates up or up to, to carry something up to some place. And pros, pharaoh, the preposition pros indicates directionality and taking it to or towards something. So they're uh, similar uh, similar words, but the word prospero is used for bringing an offering, and anapharo has the idea of bringing that sacrifice up to uh, the uh, the um, altar. So we have both words used here. Uh, prospero is used first. Christ, because he had been offered, uh, precedes the action, because he had been offered once, for the purpose of bearing the sins of many, 
will appear a second time for salvation. That's phase three, glorification, without reference to sin, because sin has been dealt with by the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And then we come into the next chapter, but you need to read this without that chapter break, because in the original, there was just a flow in the thought of the writer. And so I'm going to read it that way. Uh, So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation, for the law having a shadow of the good things to come. And that first word that we find there is shows that it is an explanation related to his uh, his work on the cross, that once uh, once for all uh, sacrifice. And now it's going to explain why his sacrifice had to happen. And so the focal point of this passage is on the superiority of Christ's sacrifice for two reasons. First of all, because it's a true substitution. It is a true substitution. In the Old Testament sacrifices and offerings, they were sacrifices, they were animal sacrifices, and an animal cannot stand in the place of a man. A human being has to die for a human being. So the first thing that is being emphasized in this section is that with Jesus' offering, with his sacrifice on the cross, there is a real substitution, man for man, so that the sins can be paid for, the sin penalty can be paid for by his death on the cross. The second thing that comes out in this section is that the human sacrifice had to be qualified as without sin. He had to be human, so that's the first point. He had to be true humanity. And so we have this emphasis all the way through this section on his body, and that's emphasizing that he is a uh, true human with a physical body. It wasn't just an apparition. And the second thing is that he's qualified as being without sin, and that's indicated by his attitude, which is the reason for the quote from Isaiah chapter, I mean from Psalm 40, verses 5 and 6. So we read here, the law, for the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never By the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Now, that's a lot of clauses and phrases piled up together, and you can get sort of confused when you track through it. But the main thought is that the law can never make perfect those who draw near. That's what this is saying. The law can never make perfect or bring to maturity those who draw near. It had a limitation. It could not bring true justification, and it cannot bring maturity. So let's break it down a little bit. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, that word shadow is the Greek word skia, which refers to a shade or a shadow. It's not a technical word. It just refers to any kind of shadow that is formed when light is 
uh, comes against any particular object. And so the shadow shows you a faint image of that which casts the shadow. But the ultimate reality is that which casts the shadow, not the shadow, uh, not the shadow itself. So the, sh- the law is the shadow, and it gives just an outline or a hint about the nature of that which causes the shadow, and that's the ultimate reality. So we see how uh, the shadow is similar to a type, and there is an ultimate reality, and that's the antitype or that which casts, uh, casts the shadow. So the law is only a shadow of the good things to come, which focuses on the cross, and it's not the very uh, form of things. Now, that word for form is the word icon. Icon. This is where we get the word for uh, an icon. And it goes back to this word, and it has to do with an image or a likeness or a reproduction. And it was originally used in classical Greek to refer to uh, a painted image. Uh, it would refer to a statue. It, ref- it would not refer to the original, but only to a, a, a painted image or reflection of the original. The word's used 23 times in the New Testament. It's used to refer to man as the image of God. So we reflect something about God. As we mature as believers, Romans 8.29 says that we are uh, conformed to the image of Christ. And so again, there's that we are to reflect Christ's character. But... um, when it's used in a context like this where there's a, a contrast between the shadow and the icon, in Koine Greek, the word icon no longer is used just to refer to that reflection, but to the original. And so that's what it refers to here is the idea of the original. The law was a shadow, and it wasn't the original. It wasn't the prototype. The prototype is what is accomplished on the cross by Christ's death. The law and the sacrifices and the the feast days like the Day of Atonement simply were a pale reflection of what would take place on the cross, but they were designed to foreshadow and to teach things about what Jesus would do on the cross. So the writer is saying, for the law, since it's only a shadow, only a pale reflection of the good things to come, and it's not the original prototype of things, can never, and very stated very strongly, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, reference to the sacrifices on the Day of Atonement. Every year, Yom Kippur, you offer the same sacrifice again and again and again. It's good enough for one year, but that's it. It doesn't go beyond that. And so it's, it's not sufficient. It's limited. So the law keeps the same sacrifice going year after year, and it can never make perfect those who draw near. Now, the, uh, these are the sacrifices they offer. That's our word prospero again. And here it's a present active indicative. It's a gnomic present indicating that this is speaking about a, an ongoing, regular uh, type of activity that would take place year after year after year after, uh, after year. But the main verb here is teleao, which means to make 
complete, make complete or to bring to completion or to maturity. It's not that idea of perfection. And um, I'm not sure if the English word perfect at the time the uh, King James translators were translating had that idea of completion or not, but the word perfect in modern English uh, has the connotation of being flawless or being without sin, and we are never made perfect. There's no such uh, doctrine as perfectionism there from the Bible. Now, there were those coming out of a Wesleyan tradition, the followers of John Wesley and Methodist theology, in the uh, starting with Wesley and on through the 19th century, who had a doctrine of perfectionism. They believed that Christians could reach a stage of being perfect, but they also have a low view of, of sin. That means they have a rather narrow view of sin. I mean, if you only have five things that are sins, as long as you don't do those five things, then you don't sin. But if you don't include things like anger and irritation and and fear and worry and anxiety as sins, then, and your sins are only the, you know, fearsome five or the terrible two, then you can pretty much be perfect and be without sin. And there are people that are in certain denominations who swear that they haven't sinned in years. What about that? Are you a little proud of that? Always wanted to ask somebody that. Does that make you feel real proud? Okay, so the idea here of teleo, all through the Scripture, this whole word group, we've talked about this before, uh, has the idea of bringing to completion or maturity. In the process of maturity, we become what God wants us to be, reflecting the image of Jesus Christ, the character of Christ. And so the point that he is making is that these sacrifices are incapable of doing that. Now, it seems to me because of where we're going is that this has to do with, may have more to do with positional sanctification than experiential sanctification. Um, But we'll get to that when we get down to verse 10. Verse 2 states, Otherwise... Word of contrast. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? In other words, wouldn't they have stopped doing this year after year after year if they actually brought about sanctification, if they actually brought about maturity, if they actually cleansed sin? So he draws the contrast. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. Now, this is an important verse to pay attention to, especially in terms of some of the words uh, that are uh, that are used here. In the uh, beginning, it starts off with the word epe, which is a conjunction, in a temporal conjunction in the Greek, indicating when or after, or because, or in contrast to, or otherwise. It has a range of meanings depending on the context. So it starts off probably otherwise indicating this contrast. Otherwise, 
would they not have ceased? Now, that seems to be a little awkward way of expressing it in English, but actually it's not a bad translation. The main verb there is to cease, which is the word pao. This is the same word that's used over in that passage in 1 Corinthians 13 when Paul says that tongues will cease. And it means just to stop, to come to a complete cessation of something. And so he's asking the question here, otherwise wouldn't they not just have stopped giving those offerings year after year after year? Would they not have ceased? And then we have a second verb, that same word we're seeing twice already in this passage, prospero, meaning to uh, offer, bring an offering or a sacrifice to the altar. And it's used in conjunction with the finite verb in order to complete the idea. So he's saying, otherwise, uh, would they not have ceased or completely stopped bringing and offering these sacrifices? Uh, because the worshipers, and um, he says, because the worshipers, and there we have the word, uh, la, la, the verb actually, latruo, it's used as a, as a participle, and it's those who are coming to serve God through, through worship in the temple. See, because the, uh, the worshipers would know, uh, having once been cleansed, and when we see that word once, we have that same word we've seen once before, and that's the word hapax. And it means one time. So we're, if you, if you ha- want to use your pen and circle it, you can go back to 928 where we have the word Christ offered once. Circle that. And then go down to, uh, verse two here. And when you have the word once occur again, circle that again. And then you can circle it again down when you get down to verse 10. And we have the last phrase, once for all. That is like uh, connecting the dots and tying the whole passage together, emphasizing that once for all work that Christ did on the cross. So the writer is saying, would they not have ceased bringing these sacrifices because the worshipers having once for all been cleansed? Now, what kind of cleansing is that? Is that experiential ongoing cleansing or is that experiential cleansing? Is that experiential or is that once for all positional? It's positional because it deals with entering into that positional relationship with Christ that our sins are forgiven. Remember the four kinds of forgiveness we talked about. Judicial forgiveness occurred at the cross. Positional forgiveness occurs when you trust in Christ as your Savior and we're identified with his death. And then we have experiential forgiveness when we confess our sins and then relational forgiveness to one another when we are to forgive one another as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven us. And so here we have the word cleansing used comparable to the second type of forgiveness, which is positional forgiveness, positional cleansing, positional sanctification. That because the worshipers having once been cleansed, that initial positional act that occurs when we trust Christ as our Savior, they would no longer have had a consciousness of sin. A, the consciousness there refers to that uh, that realization of personal guilt, not guilt feelings, 
but the, the realization that they have violated the standard of God, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sin. So he's drawing the contrast between the limitations of those Jewish offerings, the Old Testament offerings, and the work that Christ does on the cross. And then the next two verses are really fairly simple to understand. But in those sacrifices, that is, the sacrifices of the Old Testament, in those sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins year by year, the sacrifices of the Day of Atonement. Year after year after year, you just have to keep coming back and making those same sacrifices. And so there's always a reminder that the problem, the sin problem has not been finally, fully, sufficiently dealt with. Four, explanation in verse four, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin, to remove sin. It's impossible. And here we have a Greek word, uh, a phyro, which means to detach something by force, to take it away, to remove it, to cut it off, or to cause a state or condition to cease. That's the idea. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to bring it to cessation, to end it. That, that's the same idea as we had back in verse 2 with pao, they, it, it, if for then would they not have ceased. And so Ephiro here has that idea of bringing it to, uh, to a cessation. The blood of bulls and goats can't uh, bring it to a cessation. They cannot uh, take away sins. Now we come to something rather interesting. Beginning in verse 5 and 6, we have an extended quotation from the Old Testament, from Psalm chapter 40, verses 6 through 8. And so in 10, 5, and 6, they quote these verses from the Old Testament. And this is the only place that I know of in the New Testament where you have a quote of two verses, and then the next two verses requote those two verses. And if the Holy Spirit's going to emphasize through that much repetition, then we need to pay attention to what he's saying because that means that this application of an Old Testament passage to this to the cross is crucial for understanding the work of Christ on the cross and it's focusing not as much on his work as on his mentality on his thinking on his willing submission to do the will of God that's the focal point it's not on his work per se it's on his qualification to do the work because he is completely submitted to the will of the Father. That's the thrust of the of this quote. So let's look at verses 5, uh, five and then 6. Hebrews 10.5 says, Therefore, when he comes into the world... Now, that's the first advent. This is using a psalm, Psalm 40, verse 6, to illustrate the attitude that Jesus Christ had when he came at the first advent, when he was incarnate in that infant. He says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired. It is a statement toward God that you is pointed towards God the Father, saying, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but 
a body you have prepared for me. Now, we've got to get into some details on this, and we will in just a minute. Uh, the, this is a quotation that comes out of the Septuagint, which is the uh, Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. The Hebrew Old Testament doesn't read like this. The Hebrew Old Testament says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but an ear you have opened for me. But when the rabbis translated that second phrase into the Septuagint, it says, uh, they translate it as a body you have prepared for me. Now that's interesting, how, how and why they did that. And we'll come to that in just a minute, but there's a couple of things I want to point out as we, uh, as we look at this. This is related to uh, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, because the focus here is on the body that has been prepared for him. It's a body that you've prepared for me. And then in uh, verse 8, again, it has, uh, excuse me, verse uh, 9, his coming to do the will. And then verse 10, by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body. There's this focus on the human body, the physical body, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the emphasis is on that, on his humanity, not just the physical body, but on his humanity. We see this in other passages such as Hebrews 2.14, which reads, Therefore, since the children share in the flesh and blood. Who are the children? That's us, mankind. We share in flesh and blood. That is our nature. He himself likewise also partook of the same. He has the same physical body we do. This is what John is saying at the beginning of 1 John. In 1 John 1, 1, John says, uh, That which was from the beginning, and then listen to what he says, which we have heard. Empirically, we heard him. Our ear, ears were vibrated by uh, the sound of his voice, of which we have seen with our eyes. We not only heard him, but we saw him, which we have looked upon. We, we, we didn't just have a glance at him. We saw him. We gazed at him intently. We observed him for, for years and our hands have handled. We touched him. He had a real physical body. It wasn't just some sort of, of apparition. There was a solid empirical evidence that he was a man. And he manifested to us the life, and we have seen. Notice how he goes back and he reiterates this for emphasis. We have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. He repeats that. That which we have seen and heard and declared to you. How much more can he say this was real life, flesh and blood, this was a, a human being and we uh, couldn't have observed it any differently to come to that conclusion. We could not have been, been deceived. So he had to appear as a man in order to go to the cross to die in our place. And then in 1 Peter 2.24, we have the same kind of a statement made by Peter. Remember, both Peter and John were with the Lord on the, at the Mount of Transfiguration, observing his transformation and the revealing of his deity. Uh, 1 Peter 2.24, And he himself bore our sins 
in his body on the cross. Notice the emphasis there. It is in his humanity where he paid the penalty for our sins. The Greek word for that's translated bore there in the King James and New King James is that word we've looked at already, on a pharaoh, to bring something to offer as a sacrifice. It has the idea of to carry something to the altar. So he himself uh, brought, was ca- carried our sins, bore them as an offering, as a sacrifice. He carried our sins in his body on the cross for the purpose so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. It's not just about getting into heaven. It's a, he, he pays the penalty on the cross so that we can live differently because of what he has done on the cross. And this phrase that dying to sin and living to righteousness is related to the uh, Christian life. It's related to phase two that uh, Paul does the same thing in Romans chapter six. He said, you have been baptized into his death so that as he was raised from the dead, you might be raised to newness of life. See, the point of getting saved isn't just so you can get to heaven. It's so that you can serve God in this present life by maturing and growing as a believer to demonstrate that God's plan is good and perfect and acceptable, Romans 12, 12 2. Now, this, these verses come out of Psalm 40, so let's take a minute to look at Psalm 40. So if you want to, you can turn back to that passage uh, in the Old Testament. We'll take a few minutes just to talk about the original context. It's a Psalm of David. It doesn't tell us anything in the original about the circumstances that brought about this uh, thanksgiving psalm. There is a focus on thankfulness to God in this psalm in the first uh, ten verses. First ten verses focus on uh, David expressing his thankfulness to God because God is the one who has preserved him. God is the one who has protected him in the midst of the trials. He says, I waited patiently for the Lord, the word there for waiting is the same word we have over in Isaiah 40.10. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me. He responded to my prayers, and he heard my cry. Those two lines are in synonymous parallelism. He also brought me up out of the horrible pit, a graphic description of the uh, adversity that he was going through, and out of the miry clay, he set my feet upon a rock. See the contrast between the miry clay. Anybody around Houston who's walked around pr- probably out in a field in the last couple of days after that 10 or 12-inch rain we had uh, and has their feet stuck in the mud has an understanding of this miry clay that um, that is, is the picture here. You just can't move. You just get Get, it grabs your shoes and you're, you're stuck there. And in contrast, he sets his feet on a rock, a solid place, and establish my steps. He's put a new song in my mouth. That idea of a new song is always, it, it's not a new kind of music. 
It is a new psalm of praise that grows out of a new experience of God's work in someone's life. It is not an excuse to go out and change the forms and functions of music like we have between traditional hymns versus a lot of the more contemporary music. And as I pointed out in the series I did on that a couple of years ago, what changes music is worldview. When worldview changes, the music changes. And we went back and traced that all the way from the early years of Christianity, the influence of Neoplatonism on art and music, and then the shift to Aristotelianism and how that changed art and music. And then we went into the uh, Renaissance period and showed how as the worldview changed, art and music changed. We got into the 19th century in a post-Kantian and Hegelian idealistic period. The art and the music changed. You go through various decades in the 20th century, and as the worldview shifts, the art and the music changes. And the church, unfortunately, throughout much of history, has taken the music of the that comes out of the, the world system, shaped by a non-biblical worldview, and tries to marry that to Scripture. And today, in the context we have uh, in, around us, you often hear people try to justify that and say, see, the Bible says sing a new song. That's what we're doing. We're tired of that old traditional uh, hymn music, and we need to have a new song and new music. That's not what the, the, this phrase means anywhere in the Scripture. You always sing a new song as a result, a new song of praise, as a result of a new experience of God's grace and work in your life. And so that's the idea, not a new kind of music, a new kind of uh, praise. So he's put a new song in my mouth, praise to our God. Many will see it in fear and will trust in the Lord, as they hear the recitation of what God has done. See, that's the idea in the Psalms. There is a recitation of how God has worked in the believer's life to deliver them. And as they put this to music and all of the artistry that's involved in that, writing, crafting the poetry and the stanzas in order to make all of the uh, the, the rhythm and the meter work with the, with the music, all that's involved in that, then the end result is that as people hear this beautiful work of art that is expressing what God has done, the focus is on the content, uh, expressing what God has done, then many will see it and the response will be the fear of the Lord and they will trust in the Lord. And then he goes on to say in verse 4 to express trust. He said, Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust and does not respect the proud, nor such as turn aside to lies. Many, O Lord my God, are your wonderful works which you have done, and your thoughts toward us cannot be recounted to you in order. If I would declare and speak of them, they are more than can be numbered. And then he says, sacrifice and offering you did not desire. Notice how this next verse flows directly out of what he has said before. David, when he is writing this psalm, is writing in terms of his own relationship to God. It is not written as a prophecy. You go to some psalms like Psalm 22. It's clearly a prophecy 
that is related to the Messiah. There are other other psalms that are clearly understood to apply to the Messiah. Psalm 2 is one that we spend a lot of time on. But this is not a psalm that if you read it and interpret it in its original context and original meaning, that you would ever guess that this is talking about the Messiah. And this is where we get into... I'm not going to get into a technical discussion of this, but this is where you get into a lot of discussion, and, and the whole study of hermeneutics are or uh, the science, the principles of interpretation, which is one of the reasons that I brought uh, uh, Dr. Thomas in for the uh, Chafer Conference this year, is to go over these principles and to emphasize the fact that in interpreting Scripture, you emphasize the single meaning of the text. It doesn't have multiple meanings. But when you, often when you see Old Testament passages quoted or used in the New Testament, you go back and you see how they're used in the original context, and you say, well, how in the world did they ever do that? How did, and can we do that? Those are the two questions. How did they do that, the writers of the New Testament, and can we do that? And see, so you have some people today coming up with various uh, hermeneutical systems to try to say, well, we can do the same thing when we uh, study the Bible and we try to apply these things to our present experience. And that's one of the issues at the root of the shift at Dallas Seminary from a traditional view of dispensationalism to progressive dispensationalism. And you have this invention of what they call um, complementary hermeneutics. And another thing that's come up, we missed this this year at the conference because Arnold couldn't be here, but he was going to present a paper on uh, critiquing this view of what's called Pesher hermeneutics. Pesher hermeneutics, it refers to the kind of interpretation that the rabbis were using that's evident in the Midrash, which are the commentaries the rabbis wrote on the Old Testament, where it's a non-literal interpretation. And you have uh, theologians, scholars coming along today and say, we can, that's really what the writers of the New Testament were doing. They were, they come out of a Jewish background, and so they're using a Pesher or Midrashic type of hermeneutic in order to uh, interpret the Old Testament. It's a non-literal, non-grammatical interpretation. And that's just dead wrong. But see, once you start developing a way of interpreting the Scripture where you get away from a literal, historical, grammatical interpretation, then you just start making things up. And it may sound very sophisticated, and you may have lots of intricate biblical uh, arguments that confuse everybody, and so they think, oh, wow, this guy's got so much learning. He's got three PhDs, and, and he's written 25 books, and, and all of a sudden he's got this breakthrough in interpreting the Scripture. But he has violated the, the time-honored principles of a literal interpretation and the single meaning of the, of the text. And so this is a classic example of that kind of thing. And so one of the things that, that Dr. Thomas said was you, you have to recognize that the, the writer of, Psalm, of the Psalms meant one thing in that context. Now, that could be used or applied 
by a writer of the New Testament to Jesus because Jesus is paralleling that attitude so that the attitude that David exhibits here in his maturity, his devotion to God, his dependence of, of, upon God, his willingness to completely obey the Lord isn't perfect, though. And I mean perfect in the sense of flawless. But it is an imperfect shadow or reflection or type in this case, of the attitude that Jesus has. And so the writer of Hebrews is going to take that attitude that's expressed by David here, and he's going to apply it as a type to Jesus Christ. But the writer of Hebrews can do that, and you and I can't, and no professor at any seminary can, because we're not inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's not the Holy Spirit who is guiding us in doing that. And that's what uh, Dr. Thomas uses a somewhat uh, maybe a little unfamiliar or unwieldy phrase. He talks about uh, inspired census plenures. Census plenures is just a fancy Latin word for full meaning of the text. And what you have in the discussion is people, theologians who come along and say, well, you know, the, they unpack this census plenure. It means more than, than just what's there in terms of a literal grammatical uh, interpretation so we can do the same thing. No, we can't. We can't go back and, and unpack stuff that may not be there, only if you're inspired by the Holy Spirit as the New Testament writers were. So they can, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they can take these texts and assign uh, typological meaning to them because God is directing them to do so, but we can't do that. And so that's what we see here. This is expressing David's devotion to God, recognizing the limitations of the sacrificial system of the Mosaic Law uh, in his dispensation. He recognized that it has value ritually, but it doesn't have value in terms of the reality of an individual's personal, uh, personal spiritual life and the and its sufficiency to solve the sin problem. So he says, sacrifice and offering you did not desire. You wanted something more than that. And then the next verse says, my ears you have opened. My ears you have opened. Now there are some who try to make a connection, and you'll read this or hear this from somebody uh, here or there, that this really goes back to that practice in Leviticus where if a person had been an indentured slave and they had worked off their debt to whoever they were indentured to, and at the end they decided, you know, I don't do real well with financial responsibility. You know, I keep getting those credit card offers in the mail, and I keep getting the credit card, and next thing you know I'm just extended in debt again and, you know, President's not going to bail me out, so I've just got to go indenture myself to somebody and work that debt off. So I'm tired of doing that, so I'm going to become a permanent slave voluntarily because I can't handle individual responsibility very well. And so they would go, and they would have their earlobe pierced with an awl to signify that they had voluntarily entered into uh, this servitude, this slavery. And that's the idea of slavery that you have that's authorized by the Mosaic Law. It's not the kind of permanent chattel slavery that was 
part of the South in America uh, prior to the American War between the states. That's what made it different. You could always work your way out. There was always the freedom that came uh, at the year of Jubilee and the, and the sabbatical years. There was always the option to freedom. But you chose permanent slavery because you just couldn't handle uh, the responsibility of, of your finances yourself, and you would always get in trouble. So that was the idea. And so some people say that's what is being said here because literally the Hebrew says, my ears you have digged out. You have, and, and that word that's used for digging out uh, could be used to indicate the piercing of the ear with the awl. But that doesn't fit the context. The context is talking about his response to God's word. And he says, my ears you have opened. My ears you have opened by your word. It is your word that has come to me, and I am responding to it in obedience. And that's the context that's mirrored in verse 8. I delight to do your will, for your law is within my heart. How does it get there? Well, in the new covenant, it's going to be placed there. But in the old covenant, you had to hear the word of the Lord, listen to it, and respond to it. So what David is saying is that, God, you don't, you don't desire the external ritual formality of the sacrifices. That just relates to the worship in the tabernacle or the temple. Uh, my ears you have opened. Uh, I'm responsive to your word. Uh, burnt offering, which was the picture of a, an individual's devotion, commitment to God. The whole sacrifice, remember, is burned up so that all the smoke uh, goes up to God. The Hebrew word olaf or ascent, some people today want to call it the uh, ascent offering. Everything is burned up going up to God, indicating that you have completely committed yourself uh, to God. So you have you have a reference to burnt offering. Uh, the burnt offerings and the sin offering, see, he recognizes he needs to bring a sin offering. Christ didn't need to bring a sin offering. Sin offering you did not require. That's not what gets you saved. And he then in verse 7 says, Behold, I come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart. This is David expressing within his own spiritual life, his commitment to God. But because he's fallen, because he's got a sin nature, it is limited. Many of us have made similar kinds of, Lord, I, I, I want to give complete obedience to you. But we know that ten minutes later we're going to fall on our face, and David did too, many, many times. But that's the original context. So let's go back to, um, let's do, make one more point. When you have that phrase in verse 6, my ears you have opened, in the Septuagint, when the rabbis translated that into, into English, I mean into Greek rather, when they translated that into Greek, they translated it as a body in some manuscripts, in some manuscripts, probably the, and probably these represent the, the, the manuscripts that the, uh, apostles had. It's interesting that I kept reading this, and I've heard this, over the years, that this was a body you've prepared for me is the reading in the Septuagint. So I pulled out my Septuagint. I read it. That's not what it says in my Septuagint. I look in the Septuagint copies that are in both of my computer programs, and that's not what it said there. 
And then today I was finally reading something, and in the footnote the writer said, in the Roth's edition, that's the standard scholarly edition of the Septuagint that we have today, it, it translates it along with the Masoretic text. And then it listed the various other versions of the Septuagint, the various other manuscripts that have been found that don't read that way. And those are the, that's the manuscript apparently that the writer of Hebrews had where it was, tra- where it was translated, not my ears you've opened, but a body, uh, you have prepared for me. And it's getting the essence. It's, it's like a thought translation. It's, it's almost like a paraphrase. It's almost like the NIV. It's not a word for word translation. It's a thought translation. That the idea behind my ears you have opened is this idea of expressing uh, that my ears are part of the body and, uh, and then exchanging the word open to prepared. You prepared my body, my ears, so that I could hear your word. And so they t- took that idea and made that the translation. And that's almost as accurate as the NIV is in places. I was supposed to laugh at that. Because when you get into thought translations, you lose many times. The interpreter is interpreting. I mean, the translator is interpreting. He's not translating. And if he's interpreting it wrong, then the translation doesn't really have anything to do with what the original says. And and this you really have to jump through some hoops to get to that. But that's what is read in many of the Septuagint copies. Now, the interesting thing is that because of what the writer of Hebrews is saying under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, even though that's not an accurate translation of the Hebrew, it does express a truth that the Holy Spirit wants to emphasize. So the Septuagint is quoted under inspiration, which means it is now inerrant. It is now the inspired word of God, and it is applied to Jesus Christ in terms of his attitude at the incarnation, that God the Father has prepared a physical body, a human body, just for him, that through that he would be able to accomplish his mission. And it goes all the way back to Adam, that when uh, God the Father, and let's be a little anthropomorphic here, when God the Father is... uh, you know, spitting into the uh, dust of the earth and mixing up all the chemicals of the soil to make that body for Adam, what's going on in his head is he's going to design a body that would be the best of all possible bodies for him to express his love and his person, his character through, so that we look the way we look, not by pure chance. We don't look this way because God said, you know, that's good. We'll give them two legs and a straight spine so they'll have good balance, and we'll stick some little you know, gyroscope inside their ears so they're not going to get dizzy and fall down, and we're going to do these other things. But God is thinking in terms of the fact that he himself is going to inhabit this body, and it is through that physical body made the way he's going to make it and design it that he is going to express, be, best express all that he is. And that's what we see in John chapter 1, that it is through the incarnation of Christ that we can see God. We can learn about God. So, so our body isn't the way it is just by chance. 
God designed it specifically because of all the possible bodies. Just think about that. If you think about that first Star Wars movie that came out back in whenever it was, 1977, and the famous uh, barroom scene, and you go in there, and human imagination makes all these different critters and creatures from all the different places, and you have the Star Trek movies with the the, the, um, Klingons and the Romulans and all these other, uh, the Tribbles and all these other space creatures. There's all these different kinds of bodies God could have come up with to as a human, as the body he was going to express himself through. But he chose this body to look this way with two legs and two arms and two eyes and nose and mouth, that that is the way he could best express all that he is and all that he wanted to communicate to man. So it's not by chance. Now, the writer of Hebrews just quotes the passage uh, verbatim bringing out the point in 5 and 6 again, in Holborn offering sacrifices for sin, you've taken no pleasure. That is merely ritual. Verse 7, he quotes from uh, Hebrews, uh, I mean from Psalm 40, verse 6, uh, then I said, behold, I have come. And then the writer of Hebrews inserts this in the scroll of the book. It is, uh, or wait a minute, that's the, um, that's a quote he the editors put it in parentheses. In the scroll of the book, it's written of me to do your will, O God. And now look what he does. This is really interesting. In verse 80, now he's going to repeat it again, in case you missed it the first time. After saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure. In case you missed it, I want to repeat the whole verse one more time. In verse 9, then he said, Behold, I've come to do your will. And then the writer makes his point. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. What's the first? The first is the Mosaic law, the first covenant, the old covenant, the temporary covenant, in order to establish the second, which is the new covenant, which is cut at the cross, which pays the full penalty for sin. And then in verse 10, he says, By this, by what? We go back to verse 9. By this, by this second, which refers to the uh, death of Christ on the cross. By this, uh, he says, by this will. Okay. Uh, By this will, let me go back. Uh, Behold, I have come to do your will. That's the word uh, thamelios that God has, uh, expressing God's will. Behold, I have come to do your will. And then in verse 10, he says, by this will. I keep wanting to repunctuate this, and I get, uh, but it's not. It's by this will we have been sanctified. Those two thoughts. By this will. By what will? By the will of God. By God's plan, which establishes the second covenant as the once for all sacrifice for sin. By this will we have been sanctified. Now that's an interesting phrase in the in the Greek. It is a phrase that Greek students love to talk about. It's called a periphrastic participle. Periphrastic perfect participle. I just love the alliteration. It's when you have a compound of a finite verb, the verb to be, which means is. And then you have a perfect participle, which is completed action. 
you have the same structure in in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace, you, we translate in English, you have been saved, because we're emphasizing a past completed action. That's the perfect tense of the participle. But the present tense of the finite verb emphasizes the present reality of that past completed action. Now, a perfect tense verb can do that all by itself. But when you use this kind of a construction with a present tense verb and a perfect participle, it leaves you without doubt as to what the writer is saying. And I think the best way to translate it is Ephesians 9, for by grace you right now have already been saved by faith. It's that already have been, it emphasizes it's completed in the past, and it's focusing on your present circumstances as a result of a completed past action. So what the writer, the writer of Hebrews uses that same grammatical construction. He says, by this will, that is the will of the Father, which Jesus Christ is completely submitted to, we have already been sanctified. It's completed. That's why I said this goes back to phase one sanctification, our positional sanctification by that will that Jesus, that God has, that Jesus Christ committed himself to, that plan that God had to completely pay the penalty for sin on the cross, when we trust Christ as our Savior, at that instant we're positionally sanctified, so we've already been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ. Once again, it's emphasizing the humanity of Jesus Christ. Why is that so important? Through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ, once for all, F. Hapax again. It's sufficient. It only had to happen once in contrast to these sacrifices. It had to go on and on and on. But the question is, why is the humanity of Christ so important? And the simple answer is that only someone who is true humanity that was related to Adam could pay for everybody else. See, we're all related to Adam. There's a genetic connection between all of us. Now, the angels don't have that. Each angel is created individually. There's no genetic linkage. They're not all one in the first angel. They're all individual, all individual species. We are all one species. We're all the same. So one of us can die for all of us because there's that connection. And so Jesus had to be true humanity so that he could die as a substitute for all of humanity. An animal couldn't do it. Some other species couldn't do it. An angel couldn't have done it. And he can't die to provide salvation for the angels. Some people say, well, maybe maybe if demons or Satan believed in Jesus, they could be saved. No, they can't. He, he's dying for human beings. He's not dying for angels. He's not the angel man He's or the, or the God angel. He's the God man. And so he stands only in our place as a true human being. And because he is, we have a complete, final, sufficient salvation. And so we can rejoice over that and go forward. Now, that is what the writer of Hebrews is going to use as his basis for 
talking about the importance of ongoing sanctification, which is what will come out in the warning section when we get down to verse 26. But before we get there, we have to go through the next uh, 15 verses, and we'll start that next time. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your, your word, to be reminded of its sufficiency, to rem- be reminded of the sufficiency of what Christ did on the cross, to be reminded that he provided that complete once-for-all payment on the cross that we might have uh, eternal life, and that because of that we have real forgiveness for sin, we have true cleansing at the point of our salvation and so that we can live a new life in the power of God the Holy Spirit and based on what Jesus Christ did on the cross and his resurrection. And we pray that this might encourage us and stimulate us in our forward momentum to grow to spiritual maturity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.